Hello and welcome to Theology Matters. This is Dr. John Clark. And today we want to continue our study on the topic of eternal security. And uh, just as a reminder, the, the scriptures are clear that the gospel is that Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, died for your sins and rose again on the third day. The gospel is the good news about what Jesus Christ accomplished alone on our behalf 2,000 years ago. And our response to that gospel message in order to be saved, according to the Bible, is that we are saved by simply believing in Jesus Christ or trusting in Him and His finished work. And so when we talk about the topic of eternal security, we're talking about the concept that reflects the certainty of a person's salvation from God's viewpoint, whereas assurance of salvation reflects the certainty of a person's salvation from man's viewpoint. And it's the, the goal in these studies is to get our assurance to, to be based upon and to line up with God's viewpoint from the Word of God as, it, as to what it takes to be saved and to remain saved. And, and again, we believe that's the gospel, the, the work has been completed 2,000 years ago, and that the biblical response to the gospel is simply to put our faith in Jesus Christ, the one who died for us and rose again. And so we've been using the definition of eternal security uh, written by our friends at Duluth Bible Church that reads this, eternal security means that one who has been genuinely saved by God's grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone shall never be in danger of God's condemnation or loss of his salvation, but are kept forever saved and secure by God's grace and power. And that's what we believe eternal security is. And so uh, we've been looking at really some objections to eternal eternal security. And so uh, we want to consider a couple of what we would call objectionable passages in the book of Hebrews uh, over the course of the next few sessions. And um, before we do that, we want to talk about some introductory uh, things going on in the book of Hebrews in terms of just introducing the context, understanding to, to whom the book was written, why it was written, um, some overall comments. And then we want to dive into uh, Hebrews chapter six. That's the passage that we want to begin covering. And so, you know, one of the things we've got to understand about the book of Hebrews is that it was written to wavering Jewish Christians who are contemplating a return to Judaism. This is very important to understand at the outset uh, as we study through the book. And because uh, Paul is going to talk about a falling away or a, uh, you know, basically a pulling back. And um, if we mistakenly think that that's a falling away into adultery or a falling away into drugs or a falling away into, uh, you know, other type of sins. We're going to miss the context of the book. The falling away uh, talking uh, being talked about here is is wavering Jewish Christians who were contemplating a, a return to Judaism. And so the audience, again, was written to an audience of first century Jewish converts to Christianity. Uh, you can see this through the author's many references to the Old Testament and Mosaic system. Uh, we see just as a exa- couple of examples, the author used the spiritual disaster of Israel's Exodus generation as a primary example of what to avoid in the Christian life. Uh, you'll see him kind of use those as examples. Um, another example is you'll see the author of Hebrews refer to the Old Testament tabernacle, the the priesthood, the worship system, uh, again, while quoting extensively from the Old Testament passages. And then uh, just a third example, even, even chapter 11, which is typically called the Hall of Fame of Faith, 
you can see where the author cited numerous Old Testament heroes of the faith. Uh, and again, none of these names needed introduction or explanation. Again, he's writing to a Jewish audience, and that's uh, kind of proof of that audience. The other thing is, throughout the epistle, the author of Hebrews assumed that the recipients of his letter uh, were believers. And and just as, as some examples, Hebrews 3.1, uh, we see the author called the recipients of the letter holy brethren, and also partakers of the heavenly calling. Um, in Hebrews 6.9, the author referred to his readers as beloved, uh, the, the unconditionally loved ones, you could say. Uh, in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, uh, again, although he wrote extensively about his readers' need for spiritual growth, the author never questioned their salvation. And so you'll see like in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, basically said, hey, it's time to grow up. You guys should be eating more solid food. You shouldn't be uh, you know, in your same state of spiritual immaturity as you were. And so those are just some quick observations uh, to show that the audience for Hebrews were Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Um, the other thing that you see is you, is you kind of get into the book of Hebrews in terms of just looking at it from a, a 30,000 foot view, is you're going to notice that there are what we would call warning passages. In fact, uh, theologians and scholars have identified that there are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. Uh, the first one in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Uh, the second one in chapter 3, 7 through chapter 4, 13. Uh, the third one in chapter 5, 11 through 6, 12. Uh, the fourth one, uh, chapter 10, verse 19 to 39. And then finally, the fifth one in chapter 12, verses 1 through 29. And so that causes a lot of debate as to what are the reason for these passages, you know. And, um, you know, some Bible teachers will teach uh, that the author was warning the Hebrew believers that they could lose their salvation, or he was warning them that some may have falsely assumed that they were saved, uh, but were not. Now, one of the arguments against that uh, is the fact that throughout the entire epistle, the author includes himself using the personal pronoun we in each of the warning passages, showing that, that again, he considered his readers to be saved just as he was, uh, but also showing that whatever he was saying in the warning passages, that he himself uh, was had the potential to be impacted uh, by the behavior as well, uh, him, himself. And so, uh, however, the, the, the context of the entire book would seem to indicate other reasons for the warning passages, not that he was warning them uh, that they could lose their salvation or warning them that they might have never been saved, uh, but there's some other reasons. And let me let me just propose a couple of reasons uh, for the warning passages. First, the recipients of the letter had stopped growing in their faith, and and this was most likely due to adverse circumstances, persecution, false teaching. Uh, lots of things going on in this day. We know that there was um, actually a uh, Nero, most likely, if we date the book correctly, was was in the process of persecuting believers in Jerusalem, and uh, so it may have just been a way where you know they they were beginning to drift. They uh, had believed what they what they thought was true, uh, but now they were a little a little bit more hesitant, maybe maybe staying under the radar. Um, and so they were they were not growing in their faith due to these circumstances. You know, Hebrews two one, the one of the warning passages says, therefore we must give 
the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away, implying that they they were at port, so to speak, but that the potential was that they were uh, going to drift away if they did not give heed to the things that they had heard. So first reason for the warning passages, they had stopped growing. Second reason for the warning passages, some of the readers were guilty of ignoring God's word. And as a result, they were hardening their hearts toward the word of God. Um, and you can see this in, in Hebrews chapter 2, 3, uh, and 4. In fact, look at Hebrews 3, 7 through 8 for just a quick minute. It says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion in the day of trials in the wilderness. So again, he uses an Old Testament example of where the Israelites had hardened their hearts toward the word of God. And some of the Hebrew believers were doing the same thing at this point. In fact, if you jump down to chapter three, verse 13 and 15, you see, but it says, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. And then verse 15, while it is said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So we see that some of these Hebrew believers were ignoring God's word and were hardening their hearts toward the word of God. Third, we see they were losing their confidence and assurance in the Lord and in his finished work on the cross. And this is why the author of Hebrews spends almost two chapters, chapters 9 and 10, emphasizing the complete final and sufficient sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ for sins. And and see what these Jewish believers were doing is because they were starting to lose their confidence and assurance in the Lord and his finished work, they were hedging their bets by going back to the Jewish sacrificial system. In fact, look at the strong language that the writer of Hebrews uses in chapters nine and 10, uh, starting in verse uh, chapter nine, verse 11 through 14. It says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And then jump over to chapter 10, verses 11 through 14, which says, And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And so you see the the emphasis there from the writer uh, on the finished work of Jesus Christ. A fourth reason for the warning passages is that some of the Hebrew Christians had stopped meeting together with the body of Christ, not recognizing, again, the value of the body, what God wants to accomplish through the local assembling of believers. And most likely this was done due to fear of persecution. Again, just trying to stay below the radar based on what was going on in the, in this day. Fifth, uh, another thing, another warning, and this was very significant, will come into play as we look into uh, Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 10. Uh, going through these these two sections. And that is this, something very significant 
happened in history shortly after this letter was written. Uh, again, if we had the date correctly, we've got the date set for the writing of Hebrews in about 67, 68 AD. And the the significant event that happened in history shortly after this book was written was when the city of Jerusalem was completely destroyed in 70 AD through a siege implemented by the Roman general Titus. In fact, um, this destruction was predicted by Jesus Christ toward the end of his earthly life. And the cause of this was divine judgment on the nation of Israel for its rejection and murder of their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And you don't have to turn any further than to look in Luke chapter 21 uh, to see where Jesus predicted this. Luke chapter 21, uh, verses 5 and 6, he says this, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned in beautiful stones and donations, he said, These things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then you jump to verse 20 of the same chapter, Luke 21, and you see when this is described. In verse 20, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the midst of her depart. And let not those who are in the country enter her. For these are the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, for there will be great distress in the land and wrath upon this people. Speaking of what people? The Jews. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so very important that there was judgment coming on the nation of Israel, predicted by Jesus Christ during his life, judgment coming on them because of their rejection of the Messiah. And then again, this rejection formally took place for the nation in Matthew 12, verses 22 through 45, which is known as the unpardonable sin. Now, this generation's judgment was sealed in light of the fact that they rejected and crucified their Messiah. And it's reflected even in Jesus's words as he laments over the city in Matthew 23, 37 through 38. Judgment on the nation of Israel, specifically in the city of Jerusalem, was pending and looming as the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to his readers. And so not only was their spiritual health or growth at stake, but also their physical well-being and safety if they remained in Jerusalem and remained connected to the physical temple and its sacrificial system. And so by continuing to turn back to Judaism with its rituals and temple rites, they were putting themselves in harm's way because of the irreversible judgment coming from God on the nation in that specific location. 